When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and jumped into the sea. Let's pray together. Dear Lord in heaven, we ask you, as we always do, to be here with us this morning, and we trust that you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning is the third part of our three-part sermon series. Um, This may surprise you uh, because you didn't know we were having a three-part sermon series because I didn't tell you because I didn't know we were having a three-part sermon series until this week when I realized that um, this sermon or this series of readings really worked together well in uh, succession with our last two uh, weeks of readings, our last two sermons. So if anybody tells you or if anybody asks you, tell them that I was planning this the whole time. This is a a three-part sermon series that I've been working on for months. We had two weeks ago the story of Easter. It was Easter, in fact. Funny how that works out, right? Talked about Easter on Easter. And the um, message that we talked about on Easter was the promise keeper, Jesus Christ, meeting the promise breaker, who was the Apostle Peter, who had denied Jesus three times on that Thursday night after he was arrested. And then when the women went to the empty tomb on Easter, they found the young man there with a message. And he said, tell the disciples and Peter, specifically Peter, that Jesus is not here. He is risen. And he will meet them ahead just like he promised. So, in other words, tell Peter, who thinks that he has ruined this relationship with Jesus Christ by denying him three times in his hour of most dire need, tell Peter that Jesus is going to keep his promises, even when Peter has broken his. And then last week, we talked about Thomas, doubting Thomas, who we don't call St. Thomas very often, but who we're going to call St. Thomas because uh, he might as well be our patron saint, right? St. Thomas the doubter. Who among us does not feel a kinship with doubting Thomas? Not sure if all of this stuff is really true. And once again, Jesus comes specifically to the doubter. To the faithless one. Thomas, the one who, when he's told that Jesus is risen, says, I won't believe it until I put my fingers in the wounds in his hands and my hand in the wound in his side. Only then will I believe. And so Jesus comes again to the doubter, to the faithless one. The week earlier, he had shown up and left a message for Peter, the faithless one. And now a week later, he shows up to Thomas, the faithless one, again. And this week, part three of our fully planned three-part sermon series, we get the story of St. Saint Paul's conversion. Now, he's not called St. Paul in our reading yet. He's just Saul. He's just a guy. In fact, not just a guy. He is a vicious persecutor of the Christian church. So vicious, in fact, that he's just on a trip and he thinks, well, as long as I'm on a trip, I'll stop by the office and get the paperwork that I'll need in case I encounter some Christians on the way, I can go ahead and arrest them and bring them back for their trials.
And on the road, we read that a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asks, who are you, Lord? He has already got a measure of of faith that I am jealous of. If I heard of sort of a, a, a heavenly light around me and heard a voice, I'm not sure my first thought would be that God was speaking to me. I would think, oh my gosh, aliens are real. That, that, that would be my first thought. Maybe then I would think, oh wait, I'm a Christian, I should believe in God, and that he might speak to me. But I don't believe that at all. No, nobody here does. Maybe you do. I don't. And so we have this, this three part series, this, this succession of Jesus Christ coming specifically to the people who are faithless, who are doubters, who do not believe, and who are actively persecuting his church. Right in a row, we have Peter, the faithless one. We have Thomas, the doubter. And we have Saul, the persecutor. And Jesus Christ comes to each one of them specifically. And actually, it's better than a three-part series. It's sort of three parts with a, with a great tag at the end. Because we also get another wonderful story of Peter this morning, who, who is sort of um, always in the forefront of our minds when we think of sort of someone on this roller coaster relationship with Jesus Christ. We read in our reading from John about how he's fishing again because he's a fisherman. He's, he's gone back to his normal job, right? The, the Jesus thing was great while it lasted, and apparently someone says he's risen, but you know what? I've got work to do. I've got to go fish. So Jesus, Jesus. So Peter goes to fish, and his sort of, his normal crew is out there fishing with him, and they're not having any luck. Just like they weren't having any luck the day Peter first met Jesus. He's sort of like, the same situation is happening in, in film or literature. We would call this, you know, foreshadowing, right? This, this event has been foreshadowed earlier. He's, he's in the boat and he's not catching any fish. And a figure from the shore says, hey, try casting your net on the other side of the boat just like Jesus did that first day they met. And just like that day, when they cast the net on the other side of the boat, it becomes so full of fish that they can't even haul it in. Now, just remember what happened when Jesus and Peter first met, right? On that day, when they finally dragged their huge haul of fish into shore, Peter's first words to Jesus are, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Right? He recognizes that Jesus is something holy. Some sort of, at least, magical man who has told him how to catch fish. And he recognizes that compared to this man, he is a terribly broken sinner. And he says, depart from me. You don't want anything to do with me, because I am a sinful man. And what happens in our story today? This second meeting under the exact same circumstances. 
It goes the opposite way, right? Far from saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, Peter, who for some reason is fishing naked, um, throws on some clothes and leaps into the sea to swim back to Jesus. When he first meets him, he wants to get away from the holiness that is Jesus Christ. But now, he can barely has time to put clothes on before he leaps into the sea to swim back to meet Jesus again. Something profound has changed. He's going the opposite way. And then again, after they eat, Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And for Peter, this must have been a profound experience because everything is changing just A few weeks ago, he was asked three times if he knew Jesus. And he said, no. I do not know the man. Three times. And now, sitting on a beach with Jesus, he's asked three times, do you love me? And three times he says, yes. I do love you. And we know that it's true because as Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. So for Peter, something profound has changed. On the one hand, not that long ago, he was running away from a holy Jesus and denying him three times. And now he is desperate to get to a holy Jesus, a holy risen Jesus, and is affirming his love for him three times. Isn't that a journey we want to go on? I feel like, I, I feel like in my life I'm early Peter, right? I'm doubting Thomas. I'm Saul, breathing, what does it say, that beautiful phrase, Beautiful. Breathing threats and murder. That's me. But I want to get to where these people end up. St. Peter, who has Jesus promising to keep his promises. Can you promise to keep promises? I guess you can. Pledging to keep his promises. Faithful Thomas, who is given faith through the wounds of Jesus Christ and Peter, who will leap into the sea to swim to his Savior and affirm his love for him three times. How do we get from doubting Thomas to faithful Thomas? How do we get from faithless Peter to faithful Peter? How do we get from Saul breathing threats and murder to St. Paul, author of two-thirds of the New Testament? Well, we have to get good first, right? That's... That's how we we do this operation, right? How do we we get from far from Jesus to close to him? We have to get good. So how do we get good? Well, there's a book. It's called How to Be Good. It's not, unfortunately, a self-help book. It's a novel, actually. But I heartily recommend it to everybody. How to Be Good by um, Nick Hornby, who wrote um, about a boy, Fever Pitch, and high fidelity, great novels that have been turned into actually pretty good films in almost every case. Um, How to Be Good is about a woman who is a doctor and who is married to a man who's 
sort of a lout, you know, sort of a self-centered guy, not that I know anybody like that. Um, And she defines herself as sort of better than her husband, right? She's a doctor. She does good things, and she's better than her husband, so she thinks of herself as good. Then one day, her husband makes a new friend, and this new friend, and I'm not making this up, is named DJ Good News, Right? Wink, wink, right? What's Nick Hornby talking about here? DJ, good news. And all of a sudden, through this new relationship with DJ, good news, her husband becomes a good man. And all of a sudden, the wife realizes that she's not happy her husband is now a good man. She's actually cast adrift because she no longer knows how to define herself because all she's ever thought of herself was good meaning better than her husband. Now she doesn't know how to be good because her husband is good anymore. She can't just compare herself to him. How to be good? And this is a question I feel like we ask ourselves anytime in life, but especially we as Christians can think about this a lot. How do we be good? And I feel like for many of us, we think, well, being good involves making good choices, doing good Things. We sort of, we, um, we set up this syllogism. We, let's, what, what our mind desires, which is to make good choices, our will chooses, we sort of work hard on it, and, and we make the choice, whether it's hard or not. And then our heart, well, our heart will catch up later. That's what we think. We, we sort of cognitively choose what we want to do, the right thing, And then we sort of force our will in line with that choice. And then we hope our heart will catch up later. This is what we mean when we say things like, fake it till you make it, right? Do the good thing even if you don't feel it in your heart, and your heart will catch up. But does that actually work out in real life? Does does that actually sound like a program that is familiar in the execution to anybody here? Not to me. My heart never catches up. My heart always wants what it wants, and I'm always fighting it. And that's why um, the great reformer Martin Luther in the 16th century turned that order of things around. He said, what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Now that sounds like life, right? We do exactly what our heart desires, whether it's good or bad, And then later we say, oh my gosh, what did I do? How am I going to justify that to myself and to others? That's the real way of life. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So maybe knowing what's right isn't enough to actually make us be good. How many of us have had this experience? We know what's the right thing to do, but we don't find ourselves actually doing it. This is St. Paul's lament in Romans 7, when he says, I know what the right thing to do is, but I don't understand myself. I find myself continually doing the thing that I don't want to do, and I find it impossible to do the thing that I do want to do. He says, he says eventually, who will rescue me from this body of death? And look at our three patron saints from this well-planned three-part sermon series. St. Peter, Doubting Thomas, St. Paul, are these men who have made good decisions? 
Are these men who change the course of their lives by their decisions, by their willpower? No. Each one of them gets a radical change of heart. We might refer to it as a heart transplant. And we need and get the same thing. Peter is faithless until Jesus leaves him a message. You break your promises, but I keep mine. And I will keep keeping them. No matter what you do. Thomas is a doubter until Jesus shows up wounded hands and wounded side. He says, do not doubt. Believe. And he gives Thomas the faith that he lacks. Saul is a persecutor of the church, killing Christians. And Jesus knocks him off his horse and says, hey, I'm here. And St. Paul has a change of heart like that. He says, who are you, Lord? He calls him Lord in the first four words of their relationship. The same is true for us. Years after his conversion, Saul, who will become St. Paul, says that in the natural order of things, people don't sacrifice themselves for others. We're just not wired that way. He does allow that very rarely, maybe, someone might give their life for a righteous person, maybe. But, he says, here is the amazing thing about Jesus Christ. He says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While Peter was a promise breaker, Christ was a promise keeper. When Thomas doubted, Jesus had faith. When Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus changes his heart. He comes to us when we are weak, when we are afraid, when we are running the other way. Jesus comes and gives us that heart transplant that we so desperately need. He sacrifices his pure heart, giving up his life to take on our sinful hearts, our broken lives. And so, when we ask ourselves how to be good, we can know that because of and through Christ, we are and always will be, in the eyes of God, good. Amen.